We have been um, talking about Pentecost because we are in the middle of the countdown to Pentecost. From Easter to Pentecost, we've talked about this, 49 days plus one for the 50. And so as we're counting down to Pentecost, why is that important? What is Pentecost to all of us? We know what it was in the book of Acts. We know what it was to the first followers of Jesus. But see, we have to understand that Scripture doesn't exist in isolation. Scripture exists in connection with us, or it doesn't really exist at all in terms of anything that is connecting us to our our God and to each other. Pentecost celebrates the spiritual liberation that occurred for those first followers of Jesus. It wasn't probably just a moment. It was a becoming. But there was a time when they moved into a new realization of their relationship with God. They moved into a new freedom with God. And that liberation brought them trust in the midst of their uncertainty. See, a lot of times we like to think, man, if we can get into the spirit-filled life, if we could get where the, those uh, first followers were, where they were speaking in tongues and prophesying and giving these great speeches, obviously they moved into a new kind of certainty, a new kind of clarity, an understanding of things that gave them this boldness and gave them this fearlessness. And we talked about this. If you really take a look at the history of the early church through the scriptures, we find that nothing is further from the truth. They really didn't know any more than they knew before Pentecost. They were still just as uncertain, oftentimes unsure of what choice to make and where to go. They still fought among themselves. They were people. But they had one thing that they didn't have before. And that was trust. They had the trust that everything was going to be all right, even when there wasn't evidence of it in their lives, even when everything was raining down on them. They still had the trust in the midst of the uncertainty. They had trust in the midst of what could not be controlled in their lives. Everything changes when you have that. The things that you can't control, the things that you don't know for certain, do not throw you into paralysis the way that they did before when you can trust that when you put your foot down, there's going to be something solid underneath. Everything begins to change. Last week, we talked about this beautiful metaphor, starting in the Old Testament, of the movement of the Jews from Egypt out into the desert and finally into Cana. They moved out of a land that had a massive river system that had the ability to control and direct and irrigate the lands so that they had reliable agriculture. And they moved out into the desert where there were nomads living in tents. There was no water whatsoever. And when they finally move into Canaan, in Canaan there is no natural water source that can support agriculture on any scale. They were dependent upon the rains. We talked about the difference of living a salaried life, a regular salary, and living freelance, where it's job to job and customer to customer. And the difference in mindset that that creates was the same difference that the Jews had to move through as they went from Egypt into Canaan. In those early years, they were a pure theocracy. God governed them directly, with only judges coming up at times when needed to raise an army or to adjudicate something or other, but they were governed by God directly. And they ate and they survived through the rains that fell in the fall and the spring. Couldn't control them. They could pray for them. They could celebrate when they came on time. 
but it's a whole different way of living life. Life lived in trust is a very different way of living than trying to imagine that we have control, to try to exert the illusion of some sort of certainty when certainty doesn't really exist. It's a sobering realization to realize that when we hit Pentecost in our lives and when they hit Pentecost in theirs, that it didn't give them any more certainty, any more control. But they were now characterized by trust, which made all the difference in the world. They now had the freedom to be fearlessly vulnerable. And if there's any phrase, I think, that can describe what Jesus calls kingdom, it's fearless vulnerability to understand your vulnerability, to understand your powerlessness, to understand that you don't control the things around you, but you can still live fearlessly. You can still live fully. You can still risk things and see what happens. You can risk putting your heart out there in love and see what happens. Everything changes. And only this freedom, only this trust, allows us to love as God loves freely, without defense, without shields up. Because as soon as we have defense, as soon as we have shields, we have no longer connection. And connection is everything if we're to live in love. And so, we're not there yet, are we? Stone not yet smooth. We are not yet friends with uncertainty. And it's scary. The uncertainty, the unknown, it scares us. What scares us most, do you imagine? There's an obvious answer of what our primary fear is. And it's interesting that I've been asked the question over these last few weeks multiple times about this one topic. And just in the last week, I had both an 18-year-old girl and a 68-year-old man ask me essentially the same question about what this topic is going to be about. What scares us most? most? Well, death, of course. Doesn't it? Think about it. What is the ultimate thing that we fear? What's more uncertain than death? Uncertainty, unknown, equals fear in our human experience. And so here we are. We're trying to deal with life, knowing the certainty of death, or the certainty of the uncertainty of death. There's a paradox there. How do we negotiate that? How do we deal with it? A month ago, about or so, I read an article in here that our physical brains, they've done tests and they figured out that our physical brains actually shut down when mentally we link death to ourselves. There's a, there's a, like, like there's a switch that shuts off so that it doesn't connect. Our brains are trying to protect us as a survival tool from equating death to ourselves, both for the individual and for the collective. It's like death is what happens to everyone else, but it doesn't really happen to us. It's, it's an interesting phenomenon that takes place. We read through that article. And we as individuals and as a society work really hard to separate death from ourselves, don't we? I mean, we idolize youth. We try to keep death unseen. You know, Elderly are kind of hidden away. Everyone wants to stay young. We've got coroners and hospitals that deal with death so that we don't have to. It's an interesting phenomenon if you think about it. Both our physical brains and we consciously, or subconsciously at least, 
as individuals and a society, do everything that we can to kind of push that out there so that we're not really dealing with it. We find a way to pretend that we're no longer a part of the circle of life. We live lives that are separated from nature. We don't see our food killed. We see it only underneath cellophane wrappers in the freezer section. And so all of that tends to keep us pushed away so that we don't have to deal with the reality keeping it at arm's length. We extend our lives medically for as long as we can. I heard that there are now people, take cryogenics to another extreme, people are just freezing their brains. Have you heard about this? Hoping that if they can keep the brain there and keep it somehow alive, that eventually there'll be some technological ability for their consciousness to be reinstated. I mean, the links that we go through to try to avoid the reality of death because we fear it so. It's fascinating. Now, many of you, on the other hand, will tell me that you don't fear death. Many of you have told me that you don't fear death. I've told that to myself. I don't fear death either. I don't feel like I'm afraid of death. You know? why? And if so, if that's true, why not? Why would we say and why would we feel that we don't fear death anymore? I think there are three basic reasons for that. First one, I think, from some people, is that they fear life more <laughs> than death. And death becomes kind of this welcome escape. It's kind of a beam me up Scotty, you know, because life is so difficult and they're having such a hard time dealing with it that death feels actually welcome. Now, obviously, that's not healthy. And that may not describe the majority of us, but it's out there. I think the second reason is that religiously and metaphysically, we start to believe that we understand death. We start to believe that we know what comes on the other side of death. We use our religious imagery, we use our religious beliefs and doctrine to imagine that we know what heaven is like, that we know what hell is like, that we know the difference between the two and how to navigate that and how things are going to be in the next life. There are people who have had near-death experiences and we read those and we listen to their account of things and we imagine that that is true, that is so. And we think that, okay, if I know this, if it becomes a known quantity, then it's not so scary anymore. On the metaphysical side, there are psychics who talk to the dead, right? And, and people believe in reincarnation and all these different aspects, but it's all designed to do the same thing. It's designed to put a quantifier on something that is so uncertain, that's something that can't be known. And if we can start to know it, if we can imagine that we have some certainty about it, then in some way we kind of control it. And then it becomes not so scary. But think about it. When the Jews moved from Egypt out into the desert, when they moved out into the wilderness and eventually into Canaan, what were they leaving? If you look at the ancient Egyptians, there wasn't a culture probably that was more death-obsessed than the ancient Egyptians. Everything for them was about the afterlife at the expense of this one. Look at what expense they went to to prepare for the next life. Their most sacred book was the Book of the Dead. It was full of that type of focus on the next life at the expense of this one. When Moses hands down the law at Sinai, what does he do? He takes his people as far from that mentality as they could possibly go. Everything about Judaism, everything about Jewish thought, from then to this day, is about this life, and this life only. 
Jews know that they can't know anything about the afterlife, and they don't pretend to. You can believe whatever you want to believe about the next life if you're a Jew, and Jews do. It doesn't really matter because this life is the focus. Jews outlawed necromancy, talking to the dead. They outlawed embalming a body. If you even touch a corpse, you are ritually unclean. Everything about their law and about their culture was geared toward keeping them here and now, grounded in this life. Because they believed if you trusted your God, if you knew that your God was all-powerful and all-good, merciful, compassionate, just, that as long as we lived our lives between heaven and earth in such a way that we were connected with our God, then everything was going to be fine in the next life. That was God's domain. He would figure that out. Think of the difference there. But if we can imagine that we know something, it makes us feel a little better. But I think the scriptures and the story of Israel itself are telling us where to focus, where the real focus needs to be. And even if we imagine we think that we know something about death, how certain are we really when it comes right down to it? I mean, I told you, I've said that I don't fear death, that I trust God. And yet, wake up at 2.30 in the morning with chest pains going down my left arm, you know, Marion asleep, and it's like, is this the moment? What's happening right now? Now, I didn't panic. I didn't run around the room screaming. But there was that sense. First of all, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> and second of all, what's really going to happen next? With everything that I thought that I knew, with everything that I say that I believe and trust, there's that question when it's coming right there, right in my face. See, I think so many of us would have the same experience that the certainty that we think we feel, but we think we know, at that moment, is going to fall away. Because the truth is, what do we really know about death? What can we really count on about death? Now, I promise we're going to get to the third reason, but I think this needs to be developed a little bit further first. Why do we fear death so much? What is it about death? Well, the obvious one is that it's a question of identity, isn't it? Who do you think you are, anyway? I mean, who do you really think you are? If it comes right down to it, and I asked you about who you are, how would you answer the question? Most of us are going to answer with the roles that we play. Most of us are going to answer with the accomplishments that we have achieved and with the attributes that we have as a person. We're going to talk about being sisters and brothers and fathers and mothers and aunts and uncles, and we're going to talk about being businessmen and musicians and whatever we have accomplished in life. And we're going to talk about being a happy person, a loyal person, an angry person. Those things are obvious because those are what we can grab onto as a human being. We can understand those things. We can understand what it is that it means to be a human being. But here's the key. Anything that can be taken from us is not our identity. It's not who we really are. If it can be taken from us, it's not who we are. And the longer you live, the longer, more you realize that life takes everything that you think you are bit by bit and piece by piece. And then at the end of it all, death is going to take whatever's left. All those things that you think you are, that you can attribute to yourself as a human being, as an individual, ends at the headstone. That's why we fear death. 
What continues? Who are we after that? How can we even know who we are after that? And everything that we think we are, everything that we can put into words, is really just a function of our minds. Sometimes we call it the egoic mind. That part of ourselves that talks to ourselves. Everything that we can think about who we are comes from that mind. But that mind stops at death. So how can it know anything about what happens afterwards? It's just kind of circular reasoning inside your own head. Einstein is credited with saying something kind of interesting. He said, you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created it. Think about that for a second. You can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created the problem in the first place. See, we think with our minds. We fear with our minds. Our minds crave certainty because they're afraid. I'm trying to whistle past the graveyard here. But our minds end at death. We can't think our way to certainty past death. It's not possible for us to do with finite minds. Our minds literally are part of the problem and not part of the solution if we're trying to get to trust in these crucial areas. What is it that we really want to know? When it comes right down to it, what do we really want to know? We want to know if we're going to continue after death as we are, as we are known by others and as we know ourselves, That's what we really want to know, isn't it? Don't we really want to know that? Am I still going to be myself? Are you still going to know me? Do you remember the song by Eric Clapton? Would you know my name if I saw you in heaven? Would it be the same if I saw you in heaven? It's a classic formulation of this crucial question. What continues? Do we continue as ourselves, or does something else happen? Really, all the rest is commentary. That's the central question. That's what we really want to know. Last week, I read a passage, and I want to read it again this week, because I got a question about it that I thought was right on point. Luke 12, starting at verse 16. It was in a different context, but just listen. Jesus tells his people a parable, and he says, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. Therefore, I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So I got an email in the middle of the week asking about this particular passage that I read. And the question that he asked was, when we die, does God take our souls back? And I thought that was a fascinating. Your soul will be required of you. So when we die, does God take our souls back. And what I wanted to do is just read you, I replied to him by email, I'm going to read you a couple of paragraphs of what I sent to him, and then we can talk about it a little bit more. But, but listen how he responded. What I think you're asking, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is whether God takes our souls back in such a way that we, ourselves, no longer possess them. 
In other words, in such a way that we cease to exist as ourselves. If that's what you're asking, well, that's the $64,000 question that we all ask. What happens at death? Do we continue in such a way that we continue to be known and know others as ourselves? Will we recognize each other? Will we recognize historical figures? Or do we, as Buddhists suggest, return as a drop to the ocean, our consciousness absorbed back into the great universal collective consciousness? Do we cease to be individuals, in other words? You know, we don't know, and we can't know for sure. But I can say that the verse you're citing here that I read Sunday is not giving us that answer. It's an idiomatic way of speaking of the man's physical death that his soul will be required of him. That's just one of the ways they referred to that moment. Hebrews understood humans as nefesh hayah. That's Hebrew for a living being. They understood that bodies were animated by God's breath, just as Adam was animated by God breathing into his nostrils in the book of Genesis. God's breath, spirit, is our soul, the part that makes us alive. When that is required, separated from the body, the body dies. But that doesn't answer the question of our individual consciousness. Does God's breath return to him in such a way that we are still conscious of ourselves as ourselves? Scripture doesn't tell us. But there are some clues. People are spoken of returning to their fathers, implying a sense of continued community and family. There is imagery of the dead connecting and living on as themselves in the next life. Jesus meets Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration as if those dead prophets were still living in the next life as themselves. And I think that's worth a read so we can see what's going on. Matthew 17, starting right at verse 1. Six days later, six days later after what? After the conversation they're having at the end of chapter 16. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles or tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then the vision ends at that point. But here's the thing. Moses had been dead probably 1,400 years by this time. Elijah, at least 400 or so, based on traditional dates. And yet... They were being understood as still living as themselves. And Jesus talks about them, talks with them. They recognize them. How they recognize Moses, I don't know. We'll just have to take that one on faith. But they recognize them and understood them as themselves. Jesus makes a much stronger point, though, in a confrontation that he has with the Sadducees. And we'll read that one in a second. But who are the Sadducees? We need a little context here. The Sadducees are one of the foreign main sects, S-E-C-T-S, of Judaism in the first century during the Second Temple period. They were aristocrats. They were wealthy. They ran the temple system. They were priests, primarily. They had the majority of the Sanhedrin, which was the governing body. They also had very specific religious beliefs and doctrinal beliefs. 
and they cozied up to Roman power in order to maintain their own authority and power. So they were not a popular group of people from the peasants' point of view, as you can imagine. They were the ones that were way up there and lived in that way. They come and they confront Jesus at Matthew 22, starting at verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, more on that in a second, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now, why did they do that? Because a woman without a homestead, without a husband, without an estate, was on the street. There was no safety net at those times. And so in order to keep the family together, in order to keep the children being able to be raised, the next brother would take the woman into his harem, basically. Right? And so that's, that's what the, the, the law there, the Mosaic law, is all about. So now they're going to propose this ridiculous situation to Jesus. There were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died. Having no children, left his wife to his brother, so also the second, and the third, down to the seventh. They all die. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, which they didn't believe in, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. Okay, so they're mocking Jesus. What is it about the Sadducees? What, what's going on with them? First of all, they only accepted and studied the first five books, the Torah, and in the Torah, there is no mention of afterlife. There is no mention of anything beyond. And so for that reason, they said that there is none. Now, it wasn't just resurrection that they didn't believe in, as in a bodily resurrection. They also didn't believe in any future state for human beings whatsoever. They didn't believe that the soul lived on past death as an individual entity. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. Some people have said that's why they're sad, you see. But um, it's an inch, when you think about it, they believed that human life ended at death, which meant there was no accountability for how you lived in life. And you might as well eat, drink, and be merry, right, if there's nothing left. It's amazing that this one sect came to that conclusion based on the first five books, as opposed to the Pharisees that had a very well-developed angelology, demonology, and belief in the resurrection, and so on and so forth. And Jesus is coming from that side of things. But it's fascinating what they believed. And here they confront Jesus, mocking him with this crazy story. So Jesus refutes them using scripture. And look what he says, starting at verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection... People neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What is Jesus talking about here? That quote that he quotes is from Exodus. It is God speaking from the burning bush to Moses. And he declares, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, all of whom were dead for centuries at the time that Moses is standing before the burning bush. And yet what does God say? I am their God. And Jesus then says, and this God is the God of the living and not the dead. He's absolutely saying, 
The God who spoke of these patriarchs is speaking of them as living. He is still their God. He is always the God of the living and never the God of the dead. In other words, these patriarchs are still alive in some way that we can't understand, but also, by implication, alive as themselves, as recognizable, as something that we would see in them and we would know them as themselves. Now, is this absolutely conclusive? (laughs) Well, no. Could it be that we're interpreting things incorrectly? Well, yes, of course, that's a possibility. But it's pretty clear where Jewish thought is going here. It's pretty clear where it's pointing to in Scripture. And we have just left Easter. Consider Easter. Easter is the realization that Jesus is not dead, that Jesus continues to live. And what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians? He said, if there is no resurrection, if Jesus doesn't live, then there's no point to any of this. There's no point to preaching. There's no point to faith. If everything just dies, if it ends at death, then what is the point of any of this? These are the clues that Scripture gives us. Is it conclusive, absolute proof, logical proof? No, you can't say that. But what it can do is launch you in a direction of your own experience that can convince you of a truth that can give you trust. That's where all this is going. Now, I have no idea how this works. But somehow, I and all of us, I believe, continue with a sense of who we are. And personally, I just take Jesus at his word in this case. Somehow we continue living on as ourselves. No idea how it works. And I realize that this is humanly comforting to me. Sue me, you know, because this is what I'm convinced of. And I believe the scripture supports this implication. But look what Jesus talks about at verse 29. Let's go back a couple of verses because what he says here is really profound. He says that no one is given in marriage and no one marries in the next life, in Olam Haba, in the world to come. That they live like the angels in heaven. What does this point to? What's the implication here? That there are no spouses in the next life? There are no best friends? We have no circle of friends? There's no hierarchy of people that we know better than others? That we're not going to want or miss those kinds of special relationships in our lives? I don't know about you, but from a human point of view, that's kind of disturbing. It's kind of disorienting to think that way, you know? Not to have my wife in that particular way, to to have an infinite number of best friends, to be so close to everyone, feeling so one with everyone, that we feel that kind of connection. That is something that is really profound that Jesus is trying to get across. And what he's basically saying is that there is nothing that we will miss, no matter how important it seems to us now. There's nothing we're going to miss in the next life. I still remember first grade, you know, didn't get a whole lot of uh, profundities from the nuns that taught me in Catholic grammar school. But I know I've told this story here before. One little girl raises her hand and says, you know, to the nun, in heaven will I have my dog? And then nun looks at her and says, if you want your dog, you'll have your dog. That has stuck with me for 50 plus years. You know, it's just like, it's so simple, it's so pure, it's so perfect. If you want your dog, 
you'll have your dog. There is nothing that you're going to miss in the next life, even if it's so radically different that you can't even imagine it now from our perch here as human beings. This is what is implied in Jesus' words here. It's a question of identity. It's what it comes down to. If you primarily identify, if you think you are a husband or a wife, then who are you without a spouse? If you primarily identify as the father or mother of your children, who are you without those children? If you primarily identify as a businessman or a musician or a sports figure, who are you without the ability to do those things in your life? And if you primarily identify as a happy person, what happens when the depression sets in? Who are you then? It's a question of identity. Who do we identify with? Who do we identify as? Who do we think we are? This is why contemplative spirituality is so absolutely crucial. Because in contemplative spirituality, what are we doing? We are trying to step away from this mind that tells us who we are in these terms. This mind that thinks in such a way that will end at the headstone that cannot go beyond in a logical, rational way. To step away from all of that, to experience the nature of our God and the relationship that we have with our God outside of that limiting tool, that necessary tool as long as we're breathing here, allows us to experience God in a completely different way, in an unlimited way to find out that there is a deeper self that continues on, that can't be expressed because as soon as you express it with your mind, you've already changed it, you've already stepped away from it, you've objectified it. But in real-time experience, it's everything. And we realize that there is this deeper self that can speak to God with no loss in translation, in silence, in that solitude, in that simplicity, and in that stillness, that we've talked about. That's why Jesus teaches us and shows us how to pray in this way, models it for us to experience the oneness with God and with our deeper selves that is absolutely necessary if we're going to trust what we can't control, what we can't understand with certainty. And when we do this, when we practice this, sometimes contemplative prayer is called the little death why is that? We're practicing the stepping away from everything that ends to experience something that doesn't, the eternal. The more that you do that, the more that we feel and understand and become convinced that God is trustworthy, that everything that he says is going to take place. When we do this, when we can experience this, then we can begin to trust Pentecost that we're counting down to in just a few weeks is not a breakthrough to more knowledge, not a breakthrough to certainty, but it's a spiritual liberation from fear. Trust in what can't be controlled and what can't be understood. Life is presenting this perfect paradox to us. How do we live life fully? Always in the presence of the certainty of the uncertainty of death. How do we do that? How do we keep both honored, both resonating, as we move in a middle way, but able to live life in that abundance that Jesus talks about? 
It's not going to be thinking more with our minds about it that's going to do it for us. It's going to be experiencing spirit in the moments of life, every single moment, every single relationship. Any view of death that you land on, any view of death that you become convinced of, has to honor life and celebrate life. Because if it doesn't, it can't lead us to trust. This is the genius of the Jews. This is what Jesus is trying to show us. That as we contemplate death, we can only do it in the heart of life. Living this life fully. Understanding that at any moment, everything can change. But only allowing that to focus us and ground us more deeply in what is happening right here and right now. Trust is all we can really know for sure with certainty. Everything that is logical and rational, we can't do that. It's trust that is central. And once we have trust, we have everything that God has to give us. That's where Jesus is trying to take us. That is the strength and the boldness of Pentecost that his first followers experienced, that we can experience too, if we can make this turn and allow ourselves to step outside into a deeper space with our God. Let's pray. Father, just thank you for the, the questions. Thank you for the conversations over the last few weeks that helped to focus where our, our thoughts, our deepest needs really are so that we can talk about them. Help us to remove the, the stigma, the taboos that we have set up around difficult subjects like death, to talk about them freely, to talk about the limitations that we face so that we can overcome them in the ways that you have given us. Help us to look at things from a completely different perspective. Be willing to let go of the things that we carry and cling to so tightly that we can see what's really here in front of us. There is nothing to fear in you, Father. I know that. I'm convinced of that. And yet I still fear. Help me in that. Help all of us in that to become more and more fearlessly vulnerable, willing to take risks and chances for more relationship and more connection, even when we're afraid. Thank you, Father, for your love and your constancy. Never let us forget. We can only love in return because you loved us first. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right, let's all stand.